0: You may be seated. Our text this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, so if you have your Bibles, please open there. It is also in the bulletin as our third scripture reading. So as we begin, let me open us with prayer. Holy Lord, blessed be the Lord, the great God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, O God most pure pure and holy light, the pure source of everything right. Purify us, O fountain of life, wellspring of wisdom, word of God from the beginning. Guard us by your word, the fortress of truth, the two-edged sword, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Does God's sovereignty lead you to have a deep concern for the lost? Does God's sovereignty lead you to have a deep concern for the lost? The sovereignty of God, His freedom in all things, should always lead us to desire the salvation of the lost. So many falsely assume that the doctrine of divine election predestination will discourage evangelism. You have probably heard the caricature, the frozen chosen, heard that? If that is sometimes an accurate depiction, that is only due to sin, not due to the doctrine of divine election itself. Notice in our passage, Paul holds firmly to the theological truth of divine election and a deep concern for the lost. God's sovereignty, then rightly understood, should free us to do evangelism and to pray for the lost with joy knowing that ultimately it is not up to us but up to the God who we can rely on and trust to always do what is right and just so our big picture this morning is this is that we know nothing about divine election without a deep concern for the lost we know nothing about divine election without a deep concern for the lost. Our outline is simple this morning, two points, sovereign contentment and sovereign promise. So first, let's draw our attention to the first five verses, sovereign contentment. Paul in chapter 8 has laid out for us the most wonderful benefits of being a Christian, For through the Spirit of God, who bears witness in our spirit, we know that God loves us in Christ. For he even has set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. So all believers can confidently say, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. This was Paul's conclusion in chapter 8. And now Paul moves to answer a question that he anticipates. But what about the Jews, Paul? How in the world can you say that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ when so many of our fellow countrymen reject him? So in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing specifically with this issue. And we find the answer, as we will see in the next couple of weeks, in God's purpose of election. There will always be a remnant, you see. There has always been true Israel within ethnic Israel, as Paul proves from the Old Testament. This isn't something new that he's trying to prove. Paul opens this section with expressing his deep longing to see his fellow Israelites saved, his, as he calls them, his kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, his natural relatives. And notice he says that he's speaking the truth. He's not lying. These words were typical for an attestation statement in the Greco-Roman world. And would have been significant for his audience that he's writing to. But notice that he adds more than was typical for his day. He is speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. And... He adds, his conscience confirms this in the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to profess with great fervor his longing to see the Israelites saved. His conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that he has great unceasing anguish or longing or grief in his heart, in the center of his being. He goes as far to say that he wishes he would be cut off, that God would swap their places. He wishes that he would be accursed, is the word he uses, meaning set apart for destruction on their behalf so that they may be saved. There's not a clearer way to express his, uh, his anguish, is there? I can't imagine any other way for the Apostle Paul to express deep sadness Over this issue. That so many Israelites have rejected their Messiah. And in verse 4, he elaborates on the problem. You see, Israel, the nation that God declared to be his special possession, has rejected Jesus, their Messiah. This is the nation that God bestowed blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon. Over and over again. And he lists some of these things here. Eight. He lists 8, marvelous privileges. In verses 4 and 5, first we see the adoption, for Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4.22. The glory, referring to God's dwelling amongst His people, filling the tabernacle and the temple. The covenants, all the times God entered into special relationships with His people, making sinners friends. The law, that God wrote with His very finger. The worship, meaning the regulations God gave to enable the people to draw near to Him. The promises, first and foremost, the promise of the Messiah Himself, that there would be the sea of the woman who comes to crush the head of the serpent, and in that, the restoration of all things. And the patriarchs, these blessed examples of faithfulness, But most of all, verse 5, the Messiah himself. We are reminded here of uh, something even more sad and remarkable. That the Messiah that Israel has rejected is God. This Messiah Jesus, you see, is the one who rescued them out of Egypt, as Jude says explicitly. This is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, but who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he humbled himself to the point of death, even death, on a cross, in order to be the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. This is the Lord. This is Jesus the Messiah, who is God over all. This is whom they have rejected. And so the pain from the Apostle Paul bleeds off the page, doesn't it? For when you look at just how glorious this Jesus really is, God over all, blessed forever, in light of many who are rejecting him, how does it not lead you to have great anguish and sadness for those who do not believe, especially your own unbelieving friends, family, or nation. I, like many of you, have had deep anguish for many unbelievers in my life. The one that probably affects me the most is a girl named Tabitha, who I grew up with from the ages that she was my closest friend from birth to around uh, 13 or 14. Uh, she, uh, our mothers are best friends still to this day. She was raised in a godly home, homeschooled. Had all Christian friends, you know, the whole typical story. In her teen years, she started hanging out with the wrong crowds and eventually became addicted to drugs. And this happened at the same time I myself started a drug problem, though we were not friends at this point. Um, And the difference, the difference, uh, is now, almost 15 years later, she's still going strong, and I'm here before you. The difference is God's grace and his grace alone. But talk about survivor's guilt. I'm sure many of you have struggled with this sort of feeling that Paul seems to have here. Why me, Lord? Take me instead. I wish I myself could replace her or this loved one. Paul surely is expressing a similar struggle. In our text, he wishes himself to be accursed on their behalf. Many of you can relate to this and to Paul's anguish. Many of you feel like him and have begged the Lord for years and years and years to save your parents or your sons or your daughters or your brothers or your friends or your nation. First, I want you to see that you are not alone. God made sure that this text was in the Holy Scriptures, in part so that you knew you were not alone in this pain. And we don't only see this here through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, do we? Not only does Paul know this feeling and expresses it with the strongest language, but Jesus himself expresses this sort of thing. Our marvelous, perfect Savior who can sympathize with our weaknesses does a similar thing when he cries out in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. He does a similar thing in Luke 19, where he weeps. He says, it says in Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he declares judgment upon them. You see, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Nevertheless, God chooses men to be saved, and we do not. And therefore, in the midst of our valid struggle we have over close friends or family who reject Christ, we must trust in the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are inscrutable. That's exactly how Paul ends this section in the book of Romans. That's Romans 11.33. That's his conclusion. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You see, we need sovereign contentment. That uh, That is, God's sovereignty should make us content. But not a contentment that doesn't long to see the lost saved. The sovereignty of God should lead you to trust that God knows best, which should free you from anxiety over your loved ones who reject Christ, and it should give you hope. But it should never mean that your longing and anguish over lost people needs to go away. God doesn't want you to stop praying for the lost. Simply because we know it's solely up to him. Your physical issues that you're dealing with are up to him, but you still pray for them, don't you? It's, it's related to the age-old question. If God already knows, why pray? If God is sovereign, why pray? The answer, prayer doesn't change God, but it changes things and changes us. How does that work? God's plan is executed through means. His decree is executed through means. And one of these means God uses are His people's prayers. So God in history interacts with His people and answers their prayers. And so be content knowing God is gracious and just, and he knows what is best, but don't extinguish your anguish for your unbelieving friends and family. Rather, let your anguish and longing and grief over them drive you to pray for them and call upon the Lord for help as you minister to them. For God is the one who answers prayer. See, trusting in the Lord and his plan does not need to extinguish your anguish, and it didn't do so for Paul. Paul. He expresses his deep longing to see his fellow Israelites saved. Now, also, there may be some of you who don't quite feel this way. Well, this passage exhorts you to love and care for the lost, to have a heart like the Apostle Paul. Again, you know nothing about divine election without a deep concern for the lost. As Paul says elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, imitate his longing for the salvation of the Jews. Also his longing to see his nation saved. Also his longing to see his friends and family saved. Imitate him. Do you long to see the lost saved like the Apostle Paul? And so because not all men will be saved, we must be content in God's sovereign choice. However, we must long as Paul did for their salvation. Now we move to sovereign from sovereign contentment to our second point, sovereign promise. So let's draw our attention then to verses 6 through 13. 6 through 13. Keep in mind the implicit question that is the hinge to chapters 8 and 9. If nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, what about the Jews that have rejected Jesus, Paul? It looks like God's rejecting them He began by acknowledging the pain of that situation, but now makes clear that his anguish does not mean or imply that God's promise to Abraham has failed. God's sovereign promise has not failed. It goes forth. For he is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham, as John the Baptist said. The word of God has not failed. He's saving a people from all over, Jew and Gentile, who are heirs of the promise. God always has a remnant. There's always been true Israel. Romans 3 earlier in the same book, he says, "What if some Jews, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God?" And he says, "May it never be, let God be true, though every man a liar." You see, God's promises go forth and they are applied to the remnant people. not necessarily everyone who is in the covenant community has the substance which is Christ. Who are the remnant people looking at the book of Romans? those who have faith like Abraham are the remnant people in the promised Messiah. and as we've been learning in, in eight at the end of eight in this chapter nine, who are the ones who have faith? the ones whom God has chosen. As he says in verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, natural descent does not mean you are a child of promise. You could think of King Ahab, an Israelite who by no means is a child of promise. Wicked King Ahab. You can also think of Rahab, the Canaanite woman, the prostitute, who is a child of promise. Used, it She's used in the New Testament along with Abraham in James chapter 2 as an example of faithfulness. Rahab, a Canaanite woman. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are in his bloodline. For the promise goes through Isaac, not Ishmael, verses 7-9. But now Paul anticipates another objection, as if he hears a fellow Jew argue him about this Ishmael-Isaac situation, saying, I know that story. Abraham had a child with Hagar, his wife's servant, and they had a son, Ishmael. Years later, Sarah, his wife, conceived and bore Isaac. But of course the promise goes through Isaac and not Ishmael. Ishmael was born of a slave woman, Paul. And I, Paul... I am not a son of a slave woman. Both of my parents are descendants from Abraham. Your argument doesn't make sense, Mr. Apostle Paul. And how does Paul answer? Oh, but what about Jacob and Esau? You see, they were twins from the same parents. And God told their mother before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, that he chose Jacob over Esau. Drop the mic moment for the Apostle Paul. You see. John Stott summarizes this section by saying, what God's promise in election means is clear beyond doubt. It is that God's God's choice of Isaac and of Jacob does not originate in them or in any works they may have done But in the mind and will of him who calls. Paul makes this explicitly clear. Speaking of Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born. And had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works. But because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. In other words. I choose Jacob. Not Esau. And now in verse 13, we read these words. Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Rather alarming statement, but we shouldn't think of this hatred uh, as a sort of human hatred, of course. What is being said here is that God has chosen Jacob, set his love upon him, and he did not do so with Esau, which is his free choice. You may think of this as a sort of comparative hatred. Remember when Jesus in the Gospels says, to be my disciple you must hate your father and brother and mother. He's not saying literally go hate them. Of course not. He's saying love, He says love your neighbor as yourself. But in comparison to your love for me, your love of your parents should look like hatred. And so you can think of this as a similar thing, a comparative hatred. But also, what's more shocking? Consider this. What's more shocking? That God says, Jacob, I loved, or that he says, Esau, I hated. What's more shocking? If you understand your own heart, and you understand your own depravity, what should be more shocking is the Lord saying, Jacob, I loved. You see. Completely undeserving was Jacob of the Lord's love. What a marvelous thing that is, that God has set his love upon sinners like us. The big point is this, that the sovereign promise has not failed. That's that's Paul's point. Since the Lord knows who are his, true Israel inherits the promise, made up of Jew and Gentile, as we'll see more clearly next week, and this is the way it has always been. Again, Paul is not arguing something new. He's arguing from all the way back in Genesis. This is not a new argument. You should understand this. It's as if Paul's saying. So we must have great confidence in God, who accomplishes all his purposes. All his good promises come to pass. And that means that the good work that he began in you will be brought to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And hopefully you see how intimately connected this is with Paul's introduction about his pain and anguish over the lost Israelites, and how it doesn't contradict in Paul's mind. For God's sovereignty does not abolish how sad it is when someone rejects Christ, and therefore should never extinguish our love for them. But it also doesn't contradict because God uses means, and the means that the sovereign God uses to bring someone to himself is the preaching of the gospel, which is made clear in one chapter later in chapter 10. The point of the doctrine is to make you confident and secure in the Lord. That's the point of divine election, it being preached. So that we may know it is all up to him, and that we are simply his vessels. So it gives us confidence that we are his, but also humility before him. Many of the greatest evangelists in all of history were men who believed in divine election. George Whitfield, for example, in his sermon, Jacob's Ladder, says, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. May we have that same heart. And it doesn't just give confidence that God knows what is best and saves all that he chooses, but it should give confidence to us in our own election. Passages like these are in part for the sake of your assurance and your confidence. Not so you can sit and debate whether you are elect. That's working backwards. If you have faith, the point of the doctrine is to make you humble, knowing that you had nothing to do with it, and to make you assured of your salvation. Now, at the same time, a passage like this reminds us that your bloodline doesn't save you. It didn't work for Esau. Your church membership, then, doesn't save you, or anything other than faith in Christ. Are you a child of promise? Or are you an Esau? There are many like Esau that are born in the covenant community, that go the way of the world, that do not trust in the Messiah. Although the Lord will always have his Jacobs, the remnant. And so despite its necessity in the Christian life, simply being at church doesn't save you. Simply being baptized doesn't save you. Growing up in the church doesn't save you. You must be a child Of promise. And taking all that Romans has to say, the children of promise are those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. And if you do have true faith, you know God has chosen you before the foundation of the world began to be a child of promise. And so that should make you stand secure and assured. But you must know God yourself. And to know God, you must be first be known by God. Christians, look at all the marvelous privileges that God has given us. Paul speaks to the Jews in our passage and says, look at all these marvelous privileges you've been given, and yet you reject the Messiah. Well, a similar message goes out to us. You see, all the same privileges have been given to us. And many others that we lament over haven't received these privileges. We even often feel survivor's guilt over it. So may we never take these precious promises For granted. Paul in Romans 11 says to the Gentiles, warning them, Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So be warned. If you are here but have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, you will be cut off. G.K. Chesterton said, Just going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. You see, you must know God, and you must place your faith in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. For as Jesus himself said, that is eternal life. So do you know Christ? Or do you simply dress up well? So test yourselves to see, as Paul says elsewhere, whether you're in the faith. But then, if you have placed your faith in Christ, have true confidence in your salvation. For all of God's promises are sure, and never let that confidence extinguish your longing and care for the lost. May may God's sovereignty make us content As we hold firmly to the sovereign promise, for he who promised is faithful. And so we have seen Paul addressing the question, can you be separated from the love of Christ since uh, so many Jews are rejecting Jesus? Has the word of God failed? And he's addressing these things from two different angles, emotional and theological. And we've seen the answer is no. The word of God has not failed. It goes forth. For those who fall are not children of promise. God always has a remnant, for the Lord knows who are His. As Jesus says, He will lose none that the Father has given Him. And we have been reminded of the importance for caring for the lost, and how God's sovereignty does not contradict a deep concern for them. They're so intimately connected that we can confidently say that if you do not care for the lost, you don't know anything about divine election. If Scripture very organically and fluidly discusses divine election and care for the lost and the free offer of the gospel with divine election and God's sovereignty with human responsibility, then we should see it organically as well. Even if you can't completely wrap your head around it because you are a creature, you should never expect in the first place to be able to fully wrap your head around some of these marvelous doctrines of the Christian faith. And so the question I'll leave you with this morning is this. Does God's sovereignty lead you to have a deep concern for the lost? Does God's sovereignty lead you to have a deep concern for the lost? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for all your precious promises. We thank you for saving us in Christ and choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, all to your pr- uh, glorious grace, to the praise of your glorious grace. So we ask you as we go forth from here that we would live as godly Christians, filled with the Spirit of God. Bless this Lord's day, the day that you have made, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.